Welcome back team to another episode of The Few. For those of you that have found success, I hope you've celebrated the small wins and shown your appreciation to the team around you. Very excited by today's guest because I think the form of leadership we're going to discuss today is the most foundational level of leadership, which is really leadership of self, of you. As you know, to become one of the few, we have to have that self-awareness and we have to be able to be incredibly honest with ourselves and invite as much curiosity and challenge around who we are and how we approach the world each and every day. So with no further ado, I'd like to welcome him now. Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you wanna become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without gold are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Andrew Bryant. Andrew, hey, mate. Thank you so much for joining me on The Few podcast today. It's absolutely my pleasure, Boo. I'm, I'm doing great. Excellent. Excellent. First question. What does self-leadership mean to you? So I've been talking about self-leadership since the 1990s. In fact, at one point I thought I'd invented the term. In 2012, I defined self-leadership with my co-author, Dr. Anna Kazan, in the book of the same name, Self-Leadership. And we defined it as a practice, the practice of intentionally influencing your thinking, feeling, and actions towards your objectives. This is way back in 2012, and this power of intentionality is actually even more important today as the psychologists are telling us we have no free will, but self-leadership is the core of agency. And the paradox of life is even if we don't have any free will, if we act as if we create our own reality and we create our own futures. And to do that, we have to practice intentionally influencing thinking, feeling, and actions. As opposed to reacting, we are intentional and therefore the driver of our own life rather than the passenger. I love it. I feel like uh, of this concept called the thought loop. It's about feelings, thoughts, and actions being connected intentionally by a structured feedback loop. I think for a lot of people, and I'd love to get your opinion on this or your insight, your informed opinion, a lot of people tend to be driven by emotion and unable to, I guess we kind of put emotions and feelings into the same bucket, don't we? And when it comes to making decisions, what is it about us leaving decisions to the last minute or allowing our emotions to kind of override? Like what's the problem there and what can we do to try and get on top of it? Well, emotions are a feedback loop between our expectation and the reality. Simple example, you know, if you go to a restaurant with your loved one and they show you to the table by the window and the service is fabulous and, and the food is amazing and the bill is reasonable, you're going to have a very positive emotion. If you went to that same restaurant and they put you in a table by the bathrooms, the food is lousy, comes late, the waiter is rude to you and the bill is outrageous, you're going to have a, the opposite emotion, right? So it's a feedback loop between our expectation and the reality. And emotions in that situation is reactive, whereas self-leadership is about being proactive. It's about intentionality. How am I going to feel in a certain situation? 
So you and I both stand on stages and speak, and you know, public speaking is the number one fear or anxiety, and so you know, fear of death is number seven. So we know that we have to choose how to feel before we get onto the stage. If you go onto the stage and hope that you will feel good if the audience reacts well to you, then you are putting cart before horse. You are being passenger, not driver. If we're going into an important meeting with a client or our boss or a loved one, if we are intentional about how we want to feel about that situation, we are much more likely to get a positive and successful outcome. I'd love to unpack intention in terms of many people are well-intentioned and they have the right ideas and the right thoughts, but the intentions often fail to manifest in action. What is it about the connection between, you said, uh, feel, think, and act? What's the gap there? So I guess for the few, what we talk about is the few of the people that close the gap between what they want and where they are. In your practice and in terms of self-leadership, what happens between the intention and the idea and the action or the absence of? Well, the missing piece is the visualization. And I mean, let me take you right back to how I discovered all of this. I mean, I started my career in 1982 in London as a physiotherapist. And after a couple of years working in hospitals, I transitioned into working with sports teams. I worked with First Division Soccer Club. I worked with ballet company. I worked with Olympic athletes. And I quickly moved from fixing knees and ankles and bare backs to conditioning for peak performance. And my curiosity led me then into psychology in why is it that some people are successful in a match or in a performance and others are not? And in the 1980s, you know, that was where a lot of the research on goal setting and visualization was happening. And I was around at that time. And that's where the seed for self-leadership was planted in my mind. And what makes the few, whether it's a CEO, CFO, CMO, speaker, consultant, brain surgeon, is that they are playing their performance in their mind before they go and perform. So you know in advance that you will be able to handle whatever comes your way. Now, obviously, you can't predict everything, but it's the same. You're grounding as a pilot. You imagine what you need to do before you do it, whereas the majority of people are just reacting to the way the world appears to them or treats them. Yeah, we had a we called it chair flying. You had, you had your tennis racket, your tennis ball, and the tennis racket was the control <laughs> column. The tennis ball was the throttle. And you would just you would fly your missions. What I've always found really fascinating about visualization was unprompted, your own visualizations would introduce error and mistakes that you could then resolve in that mental state. You'd fly a loop and you go, oh, my left wing was low. You're not even flying an airplane yet, but you've got to rehearse the maneuver and the preemptive step. So when you actually hop in an airplane and you do it, you don't drop the left wing, you don't drop the right wing. I'm a big, I think visualization is one of the most powerful tools we have, yet few people actually actually use it. And how do you use it in a non-sport or a non-motor skill type of way? So let's say you're a salesperson, you're a sales director. How would you bring visualization into your day? So here's a concept, your best possible self or your future self. So what we have as, you know, what human consciousness gives us is the ability to project ourselves into the future. So we imagine the circumstance, whether that is you know, walking in and meeting the client for a major sale, and who is the best version of me in that situation? And so this is the distinction of the visualization. You're not just seeing the situation. You're asking this question, am I going to be empathetic and listening, or am I going to be aggressive and pushing for what I want? Am I going to be reflective in terms of what's going on? Am I going to be reading the room? 
And that's a great visualization to have reading the room because that saves you a lot of problems as you move forwards. So it's this question and it's a self-coaching question. Obviously, as a coach, you know, I work with my clients and ask them, what's the best version of you in this situation? So if you've got a performance, whether that's a sales performance, it's a leadership meeting, it's a job interview, it's asking for a pay rise from your boss. It's what is the best version of me in that scenario? And I think the power there is the best version of what you want to be rather than the best version of who you are, if that makes sense, in terms of people often project their current version rather yes. than their aspired version. I still want to bury down into this because, you know, I think from what I see in the consulting practice and the, in the experience that the company that I have after Burner is, it's so many hours invested in planning and strategy. And as you'd said, into the projection of the desired future, but the reality is so far from where it needs to be. It's almost like you invite a deterioration in trust. Trust being, if we don't do what we say we're going to do, we unintentionally breach trust, right? So in terms of just unpacking some rituals or so if we visualize and then we execute, what are some of the key self-leadership attributes you have around credibility, doing what we say? What's the trust story look like there? Okay. Well, let's let's pick up on the key word that you used twice there, which is is the word trust. So we have to trust ourselves in that scenario. Now, if there is a cognitive disconnect between what we're projecting. So, I mean, if I projected myself to be a champion jockey, there would be a huge cognitive disconnect. I'm too old, I'm too heavy, and I'm not good on horses. So that would, you know, the brain is just going to go, that doesn't work. So this projection of future self has to be believable. So I jokingly say I'm version 6.2 of myself. Now, you know, it's a cute way of saying I'm 62 years old. <laughs> now, version 6.2 has a lot more wisdom and a lot more compassion and a lot less hair than version 4.2, right? But I know that there's a trajectory. I know that I am, you know, I'm, I'm getting better at various things. So as I project myself into the future, there's a difference between a strategy plan, you know, where's the business going to be? The question is, who do I have to be to deliver that business, right? So you know, if I want to do X number of speeches in X number of countries and on X number of topics, who do I need to be to deliver that? And if there is, you know, the reality check that needs to come in here and checking the, the inner narrative, is my inner narrative saying, yep, that's within your scope, that's within the trajectory, that's within, you know, reasonable parameters of growth, or you're dreaming, mate, as uh, the movie mm. The Castle would, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps dating you and I, if you've, I hope you saw <laughs> yeah. The Castle. The classic. Um, a, a classic Australian movie, you're dreaming. You know, if there is that disconnect, then you need to address that. What needs to change for that to be a possibility? So... The visualization engages the critical thinking. You know, how do I need to feel confident? I need to have some level of influence capital. You know, I need to have connected with the right people. I need to have read up on the various pieces. You know, there is a gap in my knowledge and I need to go and address that. And that self-reflection leading to self-regulation of emotions and self-learning, taking 100% ownership that I need to prepare for this event or which is life, you know, everything. And Taking that level of ownership, and that's the key distinction. Now, now yeah. it's getting exciting. Is blaming, complaining, and playing the victim. This is to me where it gets exciting, right? Because now we start to, this is where we start to unpack our existing belief systems and structures, right? So when it comes to having those conversations, when it comes to that self-reflection, unpacking who we are, what we're capable of, now we tell ourselves stories, right? 
And these stories were written and crafted by our parents, our families, our friends, the bullies around us, the wins, the losses. My experience, I know, I know experience with, with a lot of people, it probably manifests itself more in a personal relationship when you have those conversations, which is, well, this is just the way I am and you have to accept it. Now that mindset is not just limited to relationships. We all work with those individuals inside an organization that just won't budge, right? What do we call it? Stubbornness, pigheadedness. When it comes to self-leadership and our ability to, I guess, the plasticine brain or to create different, how do we move out of that? Let's keep it real simple. How do we go from this is who I am to this is who I should be? Is it possible? Yeah, because what you've done is you've given your brain a clear direction in which to grow. Realizing you know, the cognitive disconnect aside, right? I'm not going to suddenly be a, a world-class jockey, but it is point A to point B. As long as the brain can you know, visualize what would the skill sets be, what would my, my emotional control be in that scenario, then you start training towards it. Now, every time you miss it, you know, you either take a, a feedback loop and say, well, here's what I need to do to close the gap, or you self-sabotage and say, oh, well, that was stupid. You shouldn't have started that in the first place. Now, the former rather than the latter, okay, what's the gap? How do I need to close that? And a self-acceptance, right? I mean, let's appreciate it. We're all work in progress. And that's why my version 6.2 is a kind way of doing it is it's like, I'm an upgrade and I'm going to continue to upgrade because the bugs are built in, right? So not striving for perfection, but striving for improvement and being kind to yourself on that is where it's at. If you can't imagine it, I mean, this goes back to Napoleon Hills, you know, think and grow rich, right? You know, if the mind can conceive and believe it, it can achieve it, right? This is the ultimate success manual way back when. And he was ahead of himself in terms of neurology. If we can start to visualize that, if we can start to engage in those behaviors, we do grow and develop within reason, right? We're not going to suddenly transform ourselves overnight. It takes time. Anybody who's been on a health journey to lose weight, put on muscle, knows that it's the consistency over time that matters. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing, and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. And I think people can conceptualize weight loss, fitness. I work out my muscle, it gets bigger. I moderate my eating, I get smaller. But what do you tell people that would say to you, I can't have conversations with people because I'm too sensitive. I'm not as smart as that person. I haven't had the training. These narratives, particularly around beliefs around neurosystem, our, um, just what we believe we are in terms of, of sen sensitivity. Someone says, well, I'm just an angry person or I get upset easily. Now, these, they're pretty strong beliefs, right? They're beliefs that have become an identity. So your identity is a cluster of beliefs. So an identity is hard to unpack because it's, it's this whole cluster of beliefs about self that have been built up and reinforced over time. So if somebody is open to coaching development and they say, oh, I'm just an angry person, then the coaching question for that is, how's that working out for you? And they go, well, it's not. So you go, well, what if that was just something you'd learned to do and you could unlearn to do? Would you want to change that? And they go, well, yeah. And go, okay, well, here's how you do. You've got to unpack 
the triggers. What does anger mean? Generally, it's defensiveness. What are you defending yourself against? Do you need to defend against that anymore? No, when you were a kid in the playground, maybe you needed to defend against that. Now you've got into a pattern of you know, attack before being attacked, and that's made you an angry person. Maybe you have an unresolved issue. So this is, you know, you're bordering on therapy here, but the question is, how is that serving you? Do you want to take ownership of your identity, or are you just taking the identity that society and your parents and your early teachers gave you? I mean, my mum always used to say to me, you know, you're going to end up in prison, Andrew, because you've got a short temper. <laughs> to date, I, you know, I haven't ended up in prison yet. And could be I version six point eight, mate. You never know, right? Maybe, maybe I know that that would be going in the wrong direction. I know I can go from naught to DEFCON four fairly quickly, and I even look like a nightclub bouncer. So, but I've put in, you know, practices to you know take a deep breath and go. Hang on, what are you really saying here? You know, what's your intention behind saying that? You know, should I react to this? Um, so identities evolve. It's interesting. Um, you can't change yeah. it overnight. They evolve. I love that. I, lo I love that word evolve. I was just having a conversation yesterday talking to someone about change and transformation. And both of those can go from disruption to more disruption. Whereas the assumption with evolution is it's always a better version, right? Mother nature does it. So it has to be a good thing. I remember, yeah, as I grew up, I was, I was always caught lazy, you know, now, even to this day, I just have this pathological fear of not doing stuff or being still. I'm like, oh, I need to fill this with something so I don't look lazy. Even though you understand it's not true and it's so hard to pull ourselves out of that. With your latest book, The New Leadership Playbook, one of the things, I mean, gosh, it had a really high impact front cover and it's something I'm fascinated by as well. I have this philosophy to be successful and be an asshole is actually pretty, pretty easy. To be successful and to be a good human has layers of complexity to it. And I think when you talked about how to accelerate performance and stay human and was hugely insightful, how did you get to that conclusion? What were your observations and, and your recommendations around being an awesome human being and being really successful at the same time? Well, it's come you know, 25 years of working with senior leaders and helping them build their teams. You know, I recognize that you know, there's a huge driver to deliver results. If you don't deliver results as a CEO, your tenure is going to be limited. But if you attempt to deliver those results at the cost of your people, your tenure is going to be limited. So the best leaders I worked with had nailed that algorithm between driving high performance and engaging people, and they'd done that by being human beings. And you know, the ideal, I think, would be an amalgam of many of the leaders that I have worked with. Nobody's perfect, but I've always saw the ones that were most successful had started with self-leadership. They were very self-aware of their own strengths and areas for improvement. And they took that moment to understand what's driving their people. Everybody in the book, there's a, there's a model around assertive communication. And that is everybody has needs, wants, and beliefs. You know, what do you need? What do you want? And what do you believe about this scenario? And taking a moment to connect on a human to human, well, what do you need? What do you want? And what do you believe about this? Make somebody a much better leader. Because leadership in the book, I talk about this and I talk a lot, a lot on my LinkedIn profile is leadership is not about the traits of the leader. I mean, they matter, but leadership, the only metric that matters is the change in behaviors of the followers towards the agreed objectives. If people are continuing on the same trajectory, a body remains at rest or in permanent motion unless acted upon by an external force, right? A bit of Newtonian physics there. Unless people are changing their behaviors as a result of the leader, leadership has not occurred. And so 
we're not going to engage people. We're not going to change their behaviors if we don't meet them at a human level. And that's how I came up with the concept. How do you measure it though? We're, we're very good at measuring tangible outputs, but measuring behaviors is something that, that I've certainly observed a little bit more subjective. And the challenge with subjective reflection or assessment is it's open to being quite personal. From a leader's perspective, to drive behavioral change and measure that change, like how do you do it? Well, there's, the key skill is observation. So I transitioned from physiotherapy and sports science, early bit early dabbling into psychology, into business because I was actually pulled into a business by a managing director. He said, you've helped my sports team win. Now come and work with my senior leadership team. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll give it a try. And I went in with a, with a blank sheet of paper and I observed what people were doing. I didn't come in with a big four consulting company framework and try and impose it. I was like, well, how are these people behaving? Because as a physiotherapist, what has remained with me from my early training is the power of observation. How does somebody throw a ball, kick a ball, jump over a rope and watching. And so if you can watch somebody, you can give them positive or corrective feedback. And there's a model in the new leadership book and which has an acronym, FIF, Fact, Impact, Future. Fact, what are you observing? The observation has to be for both of us. You and I are both speaking on a podcast right now. And we can observe, you know, we can agree on the context, the time, the places, the medium that this is happening. Now, if there's an issue, and in fact, before we went live, there was a feedback loop on my audio, and you said, Hey, Andrew, is there's a feedback loop on your audio? Fact, observation, feedback loop. What's the impact of that feedback loop? Well, the audience is not going to get clear audio. They're not going to understand. They're not going to get the message. So future, what can we do to take ownership and control that? So we turned some dials and we fixed the problem. So the behavior was changed through observation and ownership of the impact of the existing behavior and the desired impact of the future behavior. I think people can consume that knowledge at a tangible level, like buttons I can push, things I can play with. You obviously lean a lot into mindset in your other books as well. And, you know, Carol Dweck obviously made a fairly sizable impression on the world when she effectively gave us the growth and fixed mindset. Forbes just released the, the top three speaking topics of 2023. And the number one was mindset and well-being. What do you believe? What is Andrew's belief around mindset and what it looks like well, Carol Dweck, as you say, you know, put the research behind what has what had been in the wild, as it were. You know, people have been talking about for a long time, whether it was from neurolinguistic programming or from psychology, etc. So she gave us that model. So I believe that there's a feedback loop between mindset and behavior. So typically, our mindset drives our behavior, but also our behavior drives our mindset. Don't underestimate habits. I mean, the uh, the Greek philosophers would, would tell us that we are our habits. So by doing a thing, it becomes part of your mindset. I get up and I go for a, for a nice long walk in the mornings. And you know, initially it was a bit of a pain when I started doing that. But now I am a person who has to do that. Mm. So the behavior became the mindset. So it's worth tracking what are the behaviors that are not working. Now, when I turned 62, my doctor gave me a bit of a report that suggested that I need to take some medication and sleep with a CPAP machine, or I could lose some weight. And I'm like, well, thank you for just saying, giving me the choice. 
And when I looked at what my options were, I went, okay, well, the easiest way for me to do that is to stop drinking alcohol. I didn't think I drank a lot, but I certainly drank regularly. And so I, I said, okay, I'm going to stop. Now, the initial mindset is I'm giving something up. You know, I'm English by birth. I'm Australian. Alcohol, very parts, very it's strong parts right? of my cultures. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the narrative. If I'm giving something up, my brain is not going to like that. It's going to want to substitute something equally evil or, you know, something it's going to break. So what do I get in return? Well, what I got was a better night's sleep. What I got was no hangovers. Mm. What I got, so, and I just go, here's what I'm getting in return. And the benefits to me were great. And I felt like I'm not missing out on anything. I drank really good wine and great beers and wonderful whiskeys throughout my life for many, many years. I know what it tastes like. I've had the experience. Now I'm trying something else and I'm enjoying the benefits of that. So just the switch from I'm losing something to I'm gaining something is the mindset that reinforces the behavior. Now I'm absolutely fine. I'm happy to go to a party. Somebody says, you know, do you want to drink? I go, no, thank you. And it's no biggie. Personal journey of a change of behavior. It's such an awesome, awesome insight. I just, I've just done five fasting days over a period of two weeks and I'd always done it, but it, it's so interesting. You just said that, but it's always been, oh, I'm not eating. I'm not going to eat food for a day. Yeah. But after doing a lot more research on it, you realize well, I'm going to gain mental clarity. I'm going to be more awake. I'm going to sleep better. Oh, by the way, I'm regenerating my cells. I'm going to I'm going to live longer and all of a sudden it becomes a really fun thing to do. But I guess what you're also talking about there when it comes to are you giving up something or are you doing something less? And also the benefits of that delayed gratitude, right? Where if you have a glass of wine every night it just becomes normalized, but if you have one every couple of weeks, you savor it and it becomes an experience rather than the negative, maybe the less optimal habit. So when you talk about some of the key leadership mindsets, what do they look like? So there's a formula in the book that says clear expectations times mindset and motivation times right behavior equals results. So the key mindset is if I'm wanting to deliver results, do I know what those results are? And then, you know, what are the behaviors that are going to drive those results? And then working back from that, what is the mindset and the motivation that the followers need to have to do those right behaviors? And then what clear expectations do I need to do? And those clear expectations typically occur in a conversation. So I've boiled down leadership to leadership is a conversation, one-to-one or one-to-many. And the new leadership playbook, a play is a conversation. There are 12 key conversations that we need to have. So the key mindset for me is what is the conversation I need to have with myself around the objectives or the results? What are the conversations I need to have with my key people around their mindset, motivation, and their behaviors to achieve those objectives? And then I go out and I have those conversations. Now, what I've done then is taught leaders how to have those conversations. And I've taken feedback from them, what worked, what didn't work. And I've distilled those conversations into the framework that went into the book. In fact, the book was actually commissioned by one of my Silicon Valley clients. And uh, I went, obviously, I went, I created their internal culture book. And then I hung on to the IP by agreement to publish this. One of the, I guess habits around leadership that I'm familiar with being a former fighter pilot is how our peer group holds us accountable because we've learned over time that as a pilot without peer group inject, you eventually fly an airplane into the ground because of those stories you tell yourself, hubris, all the elements that come without any kind of external critique of performance. So within this framework, where does a peer group fit into it? And how do we invite external curiosity rather than just our own so we don't get caught you know, believing our own bullshit to some degree. Yeah, that's a great observation question. It's not in that framework, but I do mention it throughout the book. 
I trained as a coach and subsequently trained coaches. And you know, there's a sort of a, a concept in coaching that you're not injecting your own agenda into the coaching conversation. I would argue that coaches do inject their own agendas and frameworks into the conversation. But there's a level that as a senior executive coach that I, I am a confidant and accountability buddy. So you get that permission from the client to say, look, can I call you out on your BS? And you make sure that they're very clear about that because you know sometimes if you call a CEO out on their BS, they can fire you. And that has actually happened to me. So <laughs> because You're probably dealing with your, your sociopath, psychopath kind of character. I don't think people aren't excited about having well, that, that conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, if they're having a narcissistic moment, then that's probably the wrong time to do it, right? And certainly myself, you know, I have an accountability buddy that I work with in delivering my speeches. I'll go back and say, hey, I'm thinking about saying this. What have I missed? Because we all have blind spots. I'm very fortunate to have a, you know, a fantastic wife who calls me on my BS. You know, if I'm having a meltdown, she says, well, go self-leadership yourself. It certainly holds you accountable. So yes, you absolutely need to have accountability buddies around you. You need to be able to talk about your dark side and you know your self-sabotaging activities. And you need to be able to come clean and go, you know what, I just messed up and have somebody go, okay, well, that wasn't good, but let's have a look at what was running through your mind just before you did that so that we can then stop that happening next time. Do you think that's because the primal brain is really the chief Indian in our brain structure and even well-informed, well-researched, highly self-aware individuals get into positions where they're not aware that their behavior is, has lapsed into the less best version? Because, you know, theoretically, if people hold themselves to account to the highest level and then can be a bit blind to that downside, you know, what is it about us as human beings where... We just have the light and the shade, you know, what goes on there? Well, I mean, the dark side comes from the work of Carl Jung. I think we have to accept that we've got all this DNA that expresses itself. We've got our early childhood upbringing, the impact of our parents. There are so many programs and subroutines that are running. I think it's an oversimplification to say, you know, limbic system or prefrontal cortex or, you know, a, you know animal brain. Or We are absolutely complex and we're often unaware of the drivers. It is the practice of constant reflection. So, you know, one of the things that happens from a military perspective, and you know, you as a fighter pilot, every mission gets debriefed. What worked, what didn't work, what can you do next time? We don't do that in leadership in business. If we win the contract, you know, we'll have the celebration and everybody dumps themselves on the chest, but nobody then says, well, why did we win? If somebody screws up, we're always looking for somebody to blame. I've done a lot of interviewing of people looking at mindsets over the years. And I had a great conversation with a trader who traded minerals, copper, tin, you know, all sorts of stuff, iron, whatever, around the world. And he told me that he deconstructed a win even more fiercely than he deconstructed a failure. Because mm. he would say, you know, that's where the hubris lies, doesn't it? Because if he made more money from the trade than he anticipated, he clearly missed something. Rather than going, oh, I'm amazing, you go, hang on, I actually only expected to make X amount of this and I made X plus two or mm. X times two. I clearly missed something and I need to analyze that so that it doesn't flip the other way for me. And I thought that level of self-discipline around analyzing what worked and being very pragmatic about it, that is self-learning and that is one of the three pillars of self-leadership. Well, I love that. I mean, the fact that you finished on fighter pilot debriefing, which is a big practice that we've done at Afterburner for 27 years. And what I really love was just your 
absolute natural inclination and respect for that feedback loop. And I think people are afraid of it sometimes. I think if they learn how to structure it properly, it becomes infinitely powerful. Andrew, one piece of advice that you would have given yourself version 1.4, what would that have been to accelerate or fill a gap that you might've had in life or to squeeze a little bit more juice from the life orange? What would it be? Actually, I think 1.4, it's pretty young. I think 1.4 was, you know, just discovering girls. Look, one of the things that a mantra that I teach people even today is you've got nothing to prove, only things to improve. And I think, you know, 1.4, 1.8, 2.1 versions of me was out trying to prove things to other mm. people. And in that proving is driven by ego and an underlying insecurity that if I prove something, then I'm I'm validated. But the version 6.2, I don't have anything to prove. I've traveled the world. I've been successful. I'm you know I've been a dad. I've I've had failures. I've been through a divorce. I've been through life threatening situations. I've come out the other side. I've got nothing to prove. But I've still got things to improve. And if I'd learned that earlier, I think life would have been a little easier. And I would have been able to impact more people. So I share that mantra with everybody that I coach and I share it from stages when I'm speaking is that, you know, you can't lead others unless you first lead yourself. But I don't think you can lead others unless you first love yourself. Accept yourself as work in progress. But you've got nothing to prove, only things to improve. I can't wait to buy that T-shirt. That's such a powerful, very short, but very powerful statement, particularly for that phase of life where we really are governed by our ego. Andrew, look, thanks so much. I feel like we've only taken the rough skin off the young and we haven't even got to a layer that gets us crying yet. And you you being so generous with that feedback and your insight, I'm very grateful. Thanks so much for uh, sharing your, not just, I guess, the intangibles behind self-leadership, but some of the tangibles as well. Selfleadership.com is where you can find Andrew and more of his great work. Obviously, if we have an organization full of self-leading leaders, we're going to have a much better organization, particularly if they're human in their approach. So getting Andrew on stage to distribute that content at scale would no doubt be a phenomenal decision from any organization. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on The Few. I really appreciate your time today. The pleasure's all mine. Thank you, Boo, for the opportunity. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few. And I'd like to thank our partners, without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real-life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.